in Psalm 129. Basically, the Hebrew letter for that is pay, and we see that it's actually pushing really hard towards the end of the book. And when we, when we read this, we, there's some, um, a little introduction from last week and all, but we're going to go forward with this and we'll see where the Lord leads us. Thy testimonies are wonderful, therefore doth my soul keep them. The entrance of thy words giveth light, it giveth understanding into the simple. I opened my mouth and panted, for I longed for thy commandments. Look thou upon me and be merciful unto me as thou usest to unto those that love thy name. Order my steps in thy word, and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. Deliver me from the oppression of man, so will I keep thy precepts. Make thy face to shine upon thy servant, and teach me thy statutes. Rivers of waters run down mine eyes, because they keep not thy law. Last week we ended off with a beautiful, beautiful benediction in that portion of Scripture where David, he stops basically in that portion under the Hebrew letter Ain, and the beautiful benediction is, he says, I love thy commandments. I esteem all thy precepts. And then he comes down to that last verse and he says, I hate every false way. Well, that's important. When he says, I hate every false way, what he's saying that anything opposed to that is a, is a lie. Anything opposed to God's commandments and his precepts is nothing but a lie. Brace yourself for what we're about to hear this morning. This, this study that I was doing took a whole complete different turn, as I, as, as I said earlier. And I think this, what we're about to learn in a little bit is a real incredible process by which people are, how should I say, unwound to thinking that the Bible is inerrant. This is how they're desensitized to the arms and the legs and the moving power of salvation as Martin Luther had taught many times that Scripture has. This Bible has the power to grab you by the neck and show you what salvation is, and who you really are. It has the power to do that. It's never stopped in all these years. And there is now a process going on all around us that is actually broken down into seven steps that now I can, you, can, you can see by reading this, if people are not being taught properly and they've never had that, what else would they think? What is the standard by which they live? There, are, there, there is this a problem. I'm, I'm not going to talk about it yet because we're just going to get into that in a minute. But when I see what David is saying here, later on in his life, as you proceed further in Psalm 119, David's getting older. I mean, it's not like he wrote, this whole thing was written at one like, week of his life when he was at one certain age. It was a process. And as he's getting down to these latter verses, he's well into his years. And he's going back and he's remembering everything that's ever happened. And he's still saying, I mean, as you look at this verse here, we're going to be looking at that down the road. But he says, he, he, when he uses the word iniquity, I think it's incredible just to look ahead a little bit. When he says, to order my steps in thy word and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. 
I think that's very important and it gives us a really good opening into what he's trying to say because what he's saying is there is iniquity in me. That's how he is deciphering himself, not calling himself... What did all the other kings call themselves? What did they say that they were? Pharaoh. What did he say that he was? Remember? Yes. They deified themselves. David's saying something totally different than most kings that you read about in the Old Testament. Most of them, even Israelite kings, some of them even took it upon themselves to basically make themselves a god in certain ways. Look at Ahab and Jezebel. And look at some of the kings we've heard at from Pastor Olson as he's been reading in 1 and 2 Kings. But David is saying that I want to be spared from iniquity He's not saying that I spared myself from iniquity and I have walked this pathway perfect like Jesus could. We don't see David ever accepting worship in his kingship, which Pharaoh did. You bow down to him or else you'd have, you would have one of many ways that he would, he would dispose of you. And he had the power to do that. Remember King Ahasuerus? Remember that with Esther? Remember? There was a certain process that you had to walk up in order to enter into his presence, into his realm, or you could be put to death. And she even said that. What did she say? Another one of these Hebraisms that she says twice. If I die, I die. That's what she said. And she went in and she actually went around that process to talk to him and he accepted her. Why? Because the Lord had opened his heart up and ears in order to listen to her to defend the Jews. Lisi. Right. Right. Thirty days. That would have said. That would have made. That's a great statement. I mean, a, a great point because in that period of time, why hadn't he? And that took a lot of courage after all that time to go in in front of him without being summoned. And so my point is here: David is saying that he has iniquity. But as we look in verse one twenty nine. What is the word that he's using in 129 for Scripture? Testimonies. What about in verse 130? What does he say about Scripture? Thank you, Matthew. What about 131? The commandments. And if you look at these verses, he calls them precepts, he calls them judgments. And what's important about them is he's trying to teach us something that with, he's using all of these different synonyms to make a very important point. God's word is the standard. And that's what it is. So basically what he's saying is, he's basically saying, I love the commandments of God. David esteemed them. He, 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 he absolutely believed that they were perfect, they were righteous, that they were reasonable, they were merciful, and they, was, they are just, and that there is no fault that could be found in them. And we must love them because they are the epitome of his perfect image. They are the sounding point of his attributes. And if you go into the confession and you look at what is God, God is holy, just, righteous, long-suffering. There's a long drop-down of words that explain the God that we worship. Why is it important to remind ourselves of that? Anyone? I think it's a very important question. Lisey? I think, well, I'm just going to say, with everything that is attacking us, 
Bright. Right. Amen. Sure. Right. Right. It makes the wise the simple, right? But one of the, we're, we're about to get to this avalanche here in a minute. One of the points that we're looking at is one of the things, and I hate this. I remember being six years old, memorizing verses in the King James Bible. I understood them. They had big words. What I loved about the big words is it made me feel that I had some degree of intelligence, which is my whole life I've had a really, I've struggled with that. But knowing some of these big words, I mean... These big words bring you to learning what they mean. I love vocabulary. Whenever I see a new word that I'm not sure about, I love going right. That's what I love about this, uh, having a cell phone and all that. You can hit that word. Hey, Siri, what does excoriate mean? I didn't know what that meant. It means to censure. And I, I, that's a new word I learned this week. I love these words. But what's happening, and you'll see in one of these points, what they're saying today is this old original version of Scripture is too hard to understand. Well, that takes me right to John 6, when they said, Lord, these words are a hard saying. These are hard words. How can we know them? But getting back to Lisi was saying, basically, what we are trying to do by reminding ourselves and looking at these words, because I'd like to go into this a little bit more before we get in. We are going to go next into the book of Galatians. And that is going to be a fantastic study. I've been working on it now for three weeks. You're going to love it. It's wonderful. It's the most fiery letter that Paul ever had written to a church because of what we were just talking about. He went in. He set those churches up. He, he helped set those churches up. There's no obstacle documentation on that, but he was there. So we have to believe that he helped set them up. And then we have to believe it by the letter that he writes because he goes to the towns in Galatia. It wasn't just one church. It was a whole series of churches. Some met in homes. Some met in other places. And what he had said to them, what happened? I gave you the gospel. Didn't I tell you that I personally spoke to Jesus Christ myself? He called down on me and he told me exactly what to do. And I'm giving you the truth. Judaizers had crept in and had turned them against the first love and started confusing them about what they believed, about who the Messiah was. And that's what happened. And Paul goes back to the, to the Galatians and says to the, about the Judaizers, I told you that any other gospel other than what Jesus Christ is, is anathema. It is accursed. And so you're now going back and you're turning back to because you're afraid and I'm writing you to remind you what that gospel is. And that's what we're looking at here. And I'd love to plug that in, and we will, to these words because David is telling us what God's word is. He's saying there is commandments, so there's precepts. The Ark of the Covenant, what was that? That was his testimony. And the testimonies are his words, the words that were in the Ark. So what we have here, David loves these commandments. We're learning that if we're Christians, 
I pray that we all are. I'm, I'm very confident that, that, uh, that we, we are all studying together. We love the Lord. Is this our standard? Well, here's what the problem is. Here's the problem outside of here with a lot of churches, and I'm going to have to say this. I went to a memorial service this last, what was it? Was it Thursday? Was it, it was, that, that's right, it was. It was Thursday. And I went there for one and a half hours. There wasn't enough gospel to move a mouse. The broad Bible verses that were put up on the board were from some real weird translation that you couldn't even understand it. The word resurrection was never used. I look at key words. When I look for truth, I look for key words in situations that call, that where the play calls for it. I can't believe you can have a funeral without saying the words eternity, salvation, or resurrection. Not one of those words were used. We had a whole bunch of, there was a bunch of singing. You would have thought you were, pop, you were on American Idol. Um, 330 people, you know. The dear family, they're hurting. They're all crying. I don't know how you, you, you know, I don't know how you uplift them with that, but I, you know, they, I guess they felt like it. And basically, the call to Jesus was just to Jesus, not Lord Jesus Christ. Come to Jesus, and then when you're done, call us. If you want to, if, if, if you want to, if you want to invite Jesus into your heart, then call us, Greg. That's not as bad as like a celebration of life. That's what it was. <laughs> yeah, it was a memorial was not even a funeral. It was at a it was at a gymnasium. Right. That's a great point. Isn't it amazing when you go to a real funeral and you have and it's hard. The body is there. Pastor Olson talks about it. I believe whether the casket's open or closed, I don't believe that makes a difference. But when you're in a sanctuary in God's house, and then the body, then you're, then you're over at the internment, and there's a, there's a pastor that's giving the gospel, that is when you have people at a very vulnerable moment, and it really pounding into their heart. I'll, I'll say this. I'll tell you, one of the greatest preachers I ever heard preach a funeral was Pastor Keith Bird. That man could preach a funeral. I remember he would stand here and say, I am a pastor of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he would tell the whole con anybody that was there, and he didn't care who it was, you are all going to be attending one more funeral. I guarantee it. And then he would give the difference between what Christianity has to offer with being with your loved ones in eternity as opposed to the Muslims and all. And I've, I haven't heard that a whole lot. I don't hear, you don't hear that a whole lot anymore. I mean, you just hear basically like this one and many other memorials. Oh, this guy was so good, he was good, he was good. And you, you get the gospel of the dead. Basically, and so here's what's happening, and, and, and you, can, you can definitely identify with this. Here are seven points, and this is, a pro this is a progression, and I'm going to try to deal with each one of them today. If we run out of time, we'll, do, we'll finish it up next week. I, I'm not worried about time, because this, you know, I think we need to talk about this. You know. This is from the progressive, boy, that's a good word to start out with this organization, Progressive Christian Religious News from the Progressive Religious Organization. And this is from a writer whose name's Matthew, his name's Matthew DiStefano. And he says, Now gird up your loins and fit yourself for the battle. Here are seven reasons why I say a, such an inflammatory thing 
The Bible is not the inerrant word of God. It's not. And he's saying it as an absolute. I don't want to paint this in any other light that the guy's just flat out calling himself God to be able to say something like that. He's, he's playing with something very dangerous. His first point is that the Bible never claims to be. What part of Scripture doesn't claim to be the inerrant word of God? If it comes out of his inspiration, that, by, that in and of itself, his, his claim there falls by its own weight. Here's what he says. Let's start with the... Oh, he says it's obvious. Oh, it is. We're going to see if it's obvious. Let's start with the obvious. The Bible never claims to be the inerrant word of God, not in Genesis, not in Exodus, not in Deuteronomy, not in the rest of the Torah. Well, there's a problem right there. The Torah is not Scripture at all. Not in the prophets, not in Psalms, not in the Apocrypha. Apocrypha is not Scripture. We've already debunked that. Not in the Gospels. Oh, by the way, they're contradictory. He says that down the road. Oh, it's, it's like, dude, dude. Same thing they say all the time with a repetitive refrain that they're contradictive. I mean, this should rile you up as a Christian. This is what people are being taught out there. Not in the epistles? Never, not once. And I have to ask the first question. Have you ever read them? This falls by its own weight. Let's, let's read some verses, three verses. Someone look up Proverbs 30, verse 5. And then Luke 4, 4. And then 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. And different people, if you don't mind. Get everybody a chance. Proverbs 35. Boy, that's nowhere in Scripture. It's pure. Oh, I guess pure and inerrant are two different, two different applications, right? It means they're purified, but they're not inerrant. So I don't know what, which one to pick. So right there, that creates a conundrum right there for them. Luke 4.4. 4. Where are we going to hear the Word of God? If we don't hear it in Scripture, what are we going to wait for it to like be, a, a, be a severed hand on the wall like Belshazzar? That's not going to happen. Are we going to wait for that? Who's he speaking to? Teresa, he, he, who is he speaking to here in Luke 4.4? 4? Who's Christ speaking to? He's talking to Satan. Remember? <laughs> Remember when Satan, he's out in the wilderness and he says, man, man shall not eat by bread and but out of every word that proceeded from the mouth of the Father. By the word of God. Every word. Where do we hear the word of God? From our scriptures. That's where back the, the, the prophets, they read scripture by the writings that they had. The apostles, they had the Old Testament writings. That's how they got the word of God. And anything that came out of Christ's mouth, he was quoting the Old Testament. And so basically the number one point that this, that, that this very uh, sad person is saying, the Bible never claims to be. Who has 1 Thessalonians 2.13? Can someone look that up, please? Wow. Boy, what a verse to memorize. The efficacy of Scripture. What is it? 
the efficacy of Scripture, which means the effectual workings of Jesus Christ, teaches us that this word is true, it's perfect, it's a standard by which we live by, and it's not to be questioned, and it's not to be changed, according to Revelations 22, with the, with the plagues of the, 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 the plagues of Egypt, the plagues against the Egyptians coming against anybody who changes one word in it. Well, look at that, the word of God. But as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. That's number one. Wait to hear number two. Now, not only does he debunk, tries to try, it not, he doesn't even begin to debunk, but he tries to, that Scripture is not inerrant. He's now saying that Christ is not inerrant. So if Christ is not inerrant, how can Scripture be inerrant? Boy, that's a step, that's a real step off of the, off of the, off the plank, isn't it? We said, and we see here, and he, he says, he says, and, and, and this is uh, point number two, in John's prologue, however, the Bible tells us that Christ is the Word of God, better yet, Christ is the Logos of God, and then he comes back, what is the Logos? But simply according to Greek philosophy, the Logos is the structuring principle of reality. That's what the Logos is. And that Jesus Christ is not the structure of reality being perfect. And that's what he's trying to say. It, well, it's from the progressive Christian religious news, Matthew DiStefano is the one who wrote this. And that's point number two. And, it's, and but he, says, he says that Christians claim that Christ is, is basically what he's saying, but that that does not make Scripture inerrant, holy inerrant. Greg? Um, just to double back to the inerrancy point you're making, when Christ talks about the shot and the fiddle, excellent. Right. Right, and that uh, the terminology is great there because jot and tittle, that means every word being inspired of God given to us was done in a way. People have turned the Bible over. Now there's seven steps here. One does not say because it's not in chronological order. Well, the Lord didn't want it in chronological order. Or we wouldn't have been studying it and reading it the way we do all these years. There's a reason why Kings and Chronicles and all those books, they're a little out of order. There's a reason for that. And we trust the Lord on that. We don't question Him. And so basically, that's a great point, Greg. He says that, the, the, the Christ, he says they, 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 they say Christ is perfect. Christ, Christ is, is not inerrant. And so is the Bible is not holy and inerrant. Well, what does John 1, 1 say? Can someone read John 1, verses 1 through 4? I know this is obvious to, to go to this. We always go to this, and why not? John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Where do you get life from? What sinful, iniquitous person could bring life into anything on its own? 
How can anybody at all make something from nothing that is sinful? Christ could have never resurrected from the dead if he was not holy and inerrant and perfect. The only way that he could get himself up when the sun came up that morning for the resurrection is if he was perfect, he was inerrant, and he had never sinned. And now here's the problem also that I have with a lot of these. Greg's talking about celebrations of life. You want to know what I, I've preached two funerals. I don't like preaching funerals, but I'll do them. And I did two of them. And I'll tell you right now, one of the things I like to incorporate into the message is a little tiny little tidbit about evolution. You want to know the problem I have with revolution? All right, I know. The Big Bang Theory, we all go into the gases, we go into the primordial slime and the idiocy of it. There's no empirical evidence. No two evolutionists will agree on how long any of this happened. That's obvious. That right there just throws it in the garbage. But you want to know, I think we need to carry it a step further because there are people that lament over this. And if we're going to love them and be sensitive to them, and we're talking, we're defending a, a created earth, a heaven and an earth by a loving God, what part of evolution has love in it? What part of evolution has a sensitivity, a love, a morality to it? What part of that has a feeling to it? That cannot come by some kind of gas, like anything else could. Matthew. It's cold. Yeah. That's right. How, 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 how can you console someone who's hurting? Oh, I can say in the next year, maybe two years, three years, maybe some of us or maybe all of us will be, will be sitting at another loved one's bedside when they're dying. Where does evolution... Where, how are you going to sit there and hold somebody's hand and say, hey, you came from a monkey. Do you feel better? <laughs> where does that come from? Evolution has absolutely no long-suffering and compassion in it. We, the words compassion, long-suffering, the, word, the words love and charity, and we know that in, in Corinthians. All these words come from someone who has to be minding the store. R.C. always said that, Dr. Sproul, someone has to be mine. He had that debate with Carl Sagan, and Carl Sagan blew his head off because he couldn't answer the, 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 the very topic. Remember that television show, The Cosmos, which incredibly enough means order. <laughs> There's no order in evolution. Oh, it was a simple debunking, and Sagan got furious at Dr. Sproul, and he said, where did the... He said there was a Big Bang, and there was part of... Where did they come from? Where did the Big Bang come from? And that's all great. That's all a great a Christian scientific way. But where is love and compassion? Where is sensitivity? Where is relational love and giving in evolution? There's nothing. But with God, it comes exactly when he creates the heavens and the earth. He already starts forming everything perfectly generated, designed, engineered to every need that we could ever have. Because he loves us. And then when man sins against him, what's the first thing he does? He clothes him. It's all, it's love from the beginning. 
He sends His Son. All throughout Scripture, His prophets were murdered, His apostles were murdered, His Son was murdered, and after all of that, He still loves us to save us. And that's why this is so important. Teresa. I hate that. Right. Right. A better place is like. Right. It's kind of helping them just kind of generally do. Everything. To me, a better that that's just kind of dumbing down heaven. A better place to me is like going from like McDonald's to Chick Fil A. That's or like McDonald's to Outback or something. That's a better place, not your eternal dwelling. That's perfect, Matthew. There's no, no, there's nothing. Oh, you see. Right. I mean, I have not, even, even at funerals that I don't even believe, or even Christian, I've never heard somebody say, stand and say, well, there's old Ralph, and he just dropped into the grave, and that's it. He's just going to rot there. That's it. So, have a good life, everybody. No. He's resurrected. If he loved the Lord Jesus Christ, what can you say? But he's resurrected. Lisey, I'm sorry. Oh. Amen. Right. They that they say that like Teresa Teresa said they're in a better place. Where the, can you give me the coordinates to this better place? What's your manifesto? Where is your documentation on this better place? I have mine. I can show you what that better place is. It's not the better place. It's the place. It's like Jonathan Edwards says about the man that goes on a long vacation and he stays in a hotel. He's supposed to be going on a long vacation and the ultimate destination is just beautiful. It's the greatest place to go. And he goes off and he, he stays in that hotel and he never wants to leave it. That's like us on this earth. This is that hotel. And as Christians, we should be passionate about this. This shouldn't be something, oh, you're going to hear this. What's the first two points so far why this man says that Scripture is basically... He's basically saying it's stupid. If it's, not, if, it's, if, it's, if it's not inerrant, 
then it's stupid and he's calling God a liar. And all these verses say that this is God's word. God's word, it's perfect. And we're going to be reading this. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. David calls the law of the Lord God's word. Now they would say, no, the law of God is different than his word. And everything's always different. But I love, I, but they have no way of really saying intelligently why it's different. It's not. It's all, it's all one. Two more verses, and I'd like to go to the next step. The first point so far is he says that the Bible never claims to be in there, and we've easily debunked that with three verses. And I, I, we could stay here for a whole year, and I could give you enough verses and enough doctrine to rip this guy totally, completely out of reality. The Bible says Christ is. Well, now he says that, that, that that's the second point, that the Bible is not an Aaron Neal, is Christ. Now, let's finish point number two by reading. Someone read Hebrews 4.15, and please, quickly, someone find Hebrews 9.28. Okay? Hebrews 9.28, no, Hebrews 4.15 is the first one. guess that's not in Scripture either, is it? If he's without sin, well, I guess what, is there now a new study that says even though you don't have sin, you can still be errant? Is that the problem? Maybe he doesn't have the psychological know-how to, to be the Lord of the universe, but it, even though he didn't sin, that doesn't mean he's an errant. I think that's somewhere, that's got to be somewhere in this message. I, everything is questioned. Every last thing these people do, they question it and they try to rip it apart and it falls by its own weight if you stick by the holy, perfect standard. Thank you, Lisa. Hebrews 9.28. Wow. Thank you, Noah. Without sin... That is the textbook scriptural definition of absolute unbridled perfection is without sin. That's what it is. And so if you can know that and understand that, then you can really take somebody like this and hopefully, and it's not easy to do it lovingly, show them where they're wrong. That's point number two. Oh, you're going to love point number three. You couldn't make this up. If I offered you a million bucks, you couldn't make this up. The Bible is human. The Bible is human. That's the third point. But the funny thing is, when I'm reading it, I had the same exact reaction. The funny thing is, I had to look at this two different ways. That's why this study took such a different course. I'm looking at all these verses and I'm saying, okay, Psalm 119 has over 160, like 158, 160 verses. I can't remember. That's 160... I think it's over 160 verses. And the, whole, and the whole of Psalm 119 is about the perfection and the ultimate righteousness of God's Word given in many, 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 many endless, perfect, wonderful applications which I love. And I love reading it. And I've read it over and over again. I suggest you do it. The incredible thing about it is when you read about the inerrancy of Scripture, 
David doesn't even hesitate for one minute to call Christ perfect, to talk about salvation, to talk about the precepts, the commandments, and every single one of them. And now this, this comes back, and I'm seeing this, and I had to look at it from another perspective. This is why people believe this. Somebody said it. And, you know, it's amazing how if you leave, people love to follow other people. They even love to be lied to. That's why there's television. They love to be lied to. And, but they will follow somebody if they don't have anyone to tell them the truth. They'll think about this. And if you read the progression of these points, this is where Scripture has been vandalized horribly. Abraham, Abraham, Abraham or Adrian, Abraham Kuyper, he was a, from the Dutch Netherlands. He was some kind of official there, but he was a pastor. And he said, taking the inerrancy of Scripture apart, it's not just... It's it's not just it's it's not just scriptural. Um, uh, what was the word? It's not just it's scripturally disrespectful or whatever. It's vandalism. It's vandalizing. It's like taking a key to a car, a beautiful car, and just ripping it all up. That's what it's like. The third point is the Bible is human. Sure, comma the Bible. He says, "Oh, you're gonna love this. Oh, well, you're gonna love this." Sure, the Bible is inspired by God, but what isn't? <laughs> That's the same reaction. He says, what isn't? What isn't inspired by God? Well, listen to what's inspired by God according to this progressive Christian religious foundation. Humans are inspired by God too. Other books are inspired by God. The Bhagavad Gita is inspired by God. Seven hundred chapters or verses, exactly, from the Hindu. That is the Indian Quran, inspired by God. So God inspired a Bible where we all become grasshoppers, and we become insects. We become reincarnated. He inspired it, Lisi. He said the first. The first point. I mean, I'm going to word. I know what it is, but. The Bible never claims to be inerrant in and of itself. Number two, the Bible says Christ is, but he's saying neither one are. The third point is the Bible is human, that everything is inspired by God, and so since humans wrote it, even though everything is inspired by God, none of it is inerrant. So they're taking the Bible and they're throwing it into a cesspool with all this other trash and just making it another absolute great big thick book of lies. That's what he's basically saying. And people believe that. And I'm going to prove to you why. Again, you already know this, but it's good to talk about it. Matthew. He says his word is inerrant. Is not inerrant. Not, 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 not inerrant. Well, well, now you can see you're, you're pointing out the contradictions. He's saying if God is the standard by which all these other books have been inspired, boy, that would be one incredible gift to inspire and to be able to talk down to a whole earth all of these different writings. He's saying every writing that's ever been given since day one has been inspired. You'd have to be really something to be able to inspire that many books and never die. 
How can you inspire all these books if they have three and four and five hundred years? You'd had, to, you'd had to have been dead at some point. But if you're not dead, right there, he just, Matthew brings up a good point, he just called God perfect because he never died because he can inspire all of this. How could he inspire the, the, the whole, his holy word? How could he inspire the Koran and Hindu? If he could only live 70 to 100 years, maybe even if he lived the 900 years of Methuselah. You see how this, you see, you're going to run into people that have this stuff, and this is a great way to, to be able to talk to them. He's saying that Bhagavad, the, the Bhagavad Gita is inspired by God, the Koran is inspired by God, my books are inspired by God, he said, I doubt that, though perhaps not entirely endorsed by God. Why would God inspire something he wouldn't endorse? Boy, that's, that's a conundrum. And no one would claim we are inerrant. Well, unless you were a narcissist. He's now calling Christ. We just read John 1, 1 through 4. He's now calling Christ a narcissist. He's saying, if your book is inerrant, you're a narcissist. Boy, I'd love to be him on Judgment Day. He's an arrogant, he's calling God an arrogant narcissist. Matthew. He says they're inspired, but not necessarily does God endorse them. Then perhaps you'd argue for personal inerrancy, but for the rest of us, we're aware that we mess up. We're aware that we aren't without error. So he says, Scripture's not. Here's some connective Bible verses. If Scripture is connected by the inspiration of the audible directives of God, Jehovah, in the Old Testament, then our Lord Jesus Christ in the New Covenant, by the Holy Spirit, the writings of God are human, but they're wholly inspired. And they were confirmed and blessed and anointed by God himself. That's what they are. Here's a couple more verses. Quickly, someone, Job 32, 8, 2 Timothy 3.16. Everybody knows that one. I hope you know that one or know something about it. Job 32, 8, first, 2 Timothy 3.16. And this is three of seven um, applications about why this very... Uh, Prodigious man believes that the scripture is not the holy and errant word of God. Who wrote that? What's that? All right, I'll read it again. But there is a spirit in man and the inspiration, of, I was going to do it anyway, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. Job wrote it. The oldest, they're say is the, they say that's the oldest book in the Bible. Job. Job knew that it was inspired by God Almighty. No wonder he said, oh, in Job 19, verses 19 to 26, he says, oh, that my words would be written in a book. My Redeemer liveth. Boy, he thought that the, he thought Scripture was holy and inerrant, didn't he? How can you sit there and lose everything in your life and say, I don't care what happens, I will not curse the name of God. What he was saying is, I will not blame God for this. I won't blame him for this. The holy and errant word of God. And here this guy says, it's not holy and errant because it's human. Well, I never saw this next point coming. Actually, I did. 2 Timothy 3.16, who has that? Timothy didn't miss a whole lot by the direction of Paul, did he? All Scripture is inspired of God. All of it. So then what is all of it? How do we differentiate 
this is where the breakdown is. Because we're running out of time, as always. We're out of time. How does it fall and how do, they, how do they repaginate people's brains to make them think that this Bible that we study is no better than the other ones? Because there's so many translations of it. These translations have taken this Bible and made it into a complete cartoon sham. I mean, you read some of the verses. I've done that many times when I'm sitting there and I try to compare the verses and some of the new, 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 new English words that basically take over what the King James Bible says and the whole meaning of the verse is completely abrogated. It's totally different. Well, let's just stop there. I'd like to go on, but we're getting, it's getting late. We've got three more points. We'll do this again next week because the three are incredible. One of them, actually, I'll give you a little window. One of the points is there are so many translations of the Bible. How can they all be inerrant? Well, we can answer that. Aren't you glad you can answer that? I think that's very, 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 very important. Um, let's finish with prayer. Uh, Matthew, could you close us this morning? Thank you.